When I was in my second year of university, I seriously considered joining uh, the British Army. Uh, the prospect of being an army officer uh, was quite attractive at that time for some reason. Uh, when my mum found out the news that I was thinking about joining the army, she wasn't best pleased. I don't imagine too many mums would be hearing their sons thinking of going to fight a war. Uh, but it, it, even though she wasn't that happy about it, I was still very much set uh, on thinking, yeah, I'm going to join up the army once I've graduated. And now for guys who are thinking about that kind of thing, uh, there is a club in many uh, English cities called the OTC, uh, the Officer Training Corps. It's a club that's been set up to help those who are considering a full-time career in the army. It gives you an idea of what will be involved, uh, what they will expect from you, and what you will get from them in return. Uh, so I decided, yep, I'm going to try and join up to the OTC, the Officer Training Corps. Now, it's not that easy to get in. It's not like Smago, our annual uh, camp, uh, our church weekend away. Okay, you don't just pick up a form, uh, give the money in, and give it into Andrew or Herva, and uh, you'll be there. Actually, it's actually quite tough to get in. There are some uh, pretty stringent entrance requirements. I had to go on a vetting weekend, and there were five tests that they put me through, five tri trials to decide whether I was actually suitable to get into the OTC, to be in the Officer Training Corps. Uh, they used an assault course, I think you call it an obstacle course here, terrible thing with 12-foot walls and tunnels and mud and that kind of thing, um, to test my fitness. We had to give a short speech to show that we could communicate ideas effectively. There was a medical, and the less said about that the better. Uh, there were some problem-solving exercises and a short interview to make sure that we weren't just signing up so we could play with guns. It was one of the most exhausting weekends of my life. I had to work really hard in order to get in, in order to meet the, pl uh, meet the grade. But I'm pleased to say that at the end of the day, they did accept me. I, I did get in. Now, our passage this evening is concerned with the age-old question, how do we get into heaven? How do we get into heaven? Or what are the entrance requirements for eternity? And I imagine many of us here this evening may have very different ideas as to how we would answer that question, how do we get into heaven? Well, this evening in our passage we have two candidates, uh, some children and a rich young man. And Jesus assesses each of them based on their suitability for heaven. And I should say at this point that heaven is described in various different ways in our passage. Just come back with me to Matthew chapter 19, starting from verse 13. Let me just point it out. So starting in verse 13, it's called the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, a little bit further down, verse 14. The kingdom of heaven. And then later in verse 16, uh, the young man says eternal life. Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And then further down, verse 17, if you would enter life. And then later on, verse 24, it's described as the kingdom of God. Uh, lots of different words, but they're all describing the same thing, which is God's kingdom, fully established, an everlasting kingdom, where God will dwell with his people in perfect relationship in heaven. So please come back with me to the beginning of our verses, to chapter 19, verse 13, to see what Jesus makes of our first candidates, those little children. I'll read from verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. 
For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Well, some parents have brought their children to meet Jesus that they might be blessed and prayed for. Now, I reckon that if the, the PR, the personal relation agents of the likes of maybe Hillary Clinton or Nick Huckabee, who are running for the presidential elections in the United States at the moment, I reckon if their PR agents saw a group of adults, parents, coming towards them with little children, they would have massive smiles on their faces. They'd go, yes, we've got kids, right, prickly, bring them up to the front, get them around the politicians, excellent, right, now get Hillary to pick one up. Oh, there you go, picks up, oh, he said something cute, oh, she's laughing, oh, it's going really, really well. They would be so happy because kids hold a special kind of charm today. They'd think, right, the voters see them picking up these kids and all the voters go, oh, that's amazing, look, a family person, I will vote for them. But in Jesus' day, uh, things were a little bit different. Uh, Children were certainly not seen in the same light. They were actually considered to be more of uh, a bunch of pests. People who weren't actually ready yet for any good use. They hadn't grown up. Uh, They couldn't help out in any valuable, useful trade. Uh, So they were just seen as dependents who took up valuable time and resources. And as the disciples saw the parents bringing the children and approaching Jesus... Well, they rebuke them. Don't waste Jesus' time with those little ones. He's far too important for them. But Jesus stops them. Let me read again. Verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw a quality in these little children that is required for entrance into heaven. Well, before we work out what that is, uh, we're going to look on to our second point. We're going to look at the second candidate, this young man. Uh, this guy was very, very keen to know how he might have eternal life. Uh, we're told he certainly wasn't in a desperate situation, not by the world standards anyway. He was considered rather wealthy. Uh, we read down in verse 22, he had great possessions. He had accumulated a lot of wealth, and he was still in his youth. He approaches Jesus and asks him, come with me, verse 16, he asks him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Clearly he's a man of some pride. He likes to sort things out. It's the mark of a man by today's society. He takes care of himself. He's his own boss. He solves his own problems. And he really wants to know how he could have eternal life. It's a genuine question. He did want to know how he might have eternal life, but he wanted to know how he could have it on his terms. So he asks that question, what good must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus doesn't give him the answer straight away. He starts by actually examining that man's question. Verse 17a, just the first part of verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Did you notice how the young man actually addressed Jesus? The title that he used, he called him teacher. That's a very common title. It's given to those who are perceived to have great wisdom. 
You see, this young man didn't view Jesus as God or any kind of superior being, for that matter. He just saw Jesus as some pretty wise bloke, had a lot of wisdom, but he was just, in, in his eyes, Jesus was just an ordinary man. And yet he assumes that Jesus knows what is good. That's something that's assumed today. Uh, people don't even think about it. That we as human beings can actually decide what's good for ourselves. I remember when I was back at university, we were doing some uh, video interviews with students on campus. Uh, we were prepping for a Christian Union talk. And so we went around campus, and it was lunchtime, so lots of students milling around, not as if they've got anything to do in the day anyway. And we asked them, uh, do you believe in heaven? And then we asked them, do you think you're going to get there when you die? And then finally, if you do think that, then why? Why, why is God going to let you into his heaven uh, when you die? Well, most of them answered, yeah, for the first two. Uh, yeah, I believe in heaven. Yes, I'm definitely going to get there uh, when I die. And so we followed it up. We said, well, why? Why is God going to let you into his heaven? And they responded along, something along these lines. Because I'm okay. I'm a good guy. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I, I just think I've generally lived a moral life and I'll be alright at the end of the day. I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm okay. So then we asked them another question. We asked them, okay, at the end of the day, do you think God is going to let you into his heaven based on your terms or his? Based on your idea of morality or his idea of morality? And when we asked them that, they got quite uncomfortable. Uh, the answer is obvious. It will be God's terms by which he judges whether we get into his heaven or not. But most of them are just assume that they got it right. That they knew what it meant to be good. They had never even taken the time to consider what God's point of view might be. And that's really foolish. Because the very definition of what is good can only come from God. He is the law giver to his creation. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong in the universe that he has made. It is actually the very heart of sin to say, we can decide for ourselves what's good and what's not. It's, it's what Adam and Eve did back in the garden. We read about it in Genesis 3. They assorted the authority of the true lawgiver, God himself, because they thought they knew better than God. And so they rebelled against him. They broke his commands. They wanted to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And they brought God's, uh, God's curse of sin and death into the world as a result. Well, this young man was of that same opinion that humans could be morally self-sufficient, that goodness could be decided by man apart from God. So Jesus graciously shows him his error. In verse 17 he says, There is only one who is good. There is only one who is good. And that's God, of course. To be good is to obey God. It's to live by his commandments. Not living by our own rules or our own standards. We weren't made to do that. Jesus tells the man, verse 17 again, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Don't try to be good by your own standards. 
good by God's standard. Well, that's raised the bar quite a bit. It's easy living by our own standards, what we think is right and wrong, but by God's standards? Well, for us, that's impossible. We're all guilty of rebelling against him one way or another. We're all sinful. We've all broken his law. And the man should have realized that he had failed at keeping God's commandments, at honoring him. And there and then, he should have begged for mercy. But he persists. He asks Jesus, well, which ones? Which commandments should I follow? Maybe, maybe you just have to follow a few. If you only had to follow a few, that, that, that might be okay. He might have made it. So he asks him, which ones, which commandments must I follow? And Jesus replies in verse 18. Sorry, yeah, verse 18. Jesus said, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he adds that summary at the end. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now out of the first five of those commandments, do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and honor your father and mother, I think there's there's actually a reason for why Jesus just mentioned those ones rather than the others as well. You see, they can, all those five can be easily measured by some sort of an external standard. That's why I think Jesus mentioned those in particular. They can easily be measured by an external standard. Uh, the young man would have known if he had actually broken any of those five in a practical way. Because he viewed the law a bit like a Pharisee, a bit like the guys that we saw last week, earlier in the chapter. Those guys were very good at measuring themselves against God's law uh, based on their own uh, ways of measuring, their own measurements. Keeping God's law externally in a very shallow, practical sense. And so with that understanding in mind, the young rich man replies in verse 20, all these I have kept. I've kept them all. And he probably had kept at least those five in an external sense. He probably hadn't killed anyone. He hadn't slept with a woman, uh, apart from his wife, if he was married. He hadn't testified falsely in a court of law or dishonored his father or mother. In practice. But Jesus' explanation of what it means to keep God's law goes much deeper than that. Uh, During the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5, Jesus taught the people that God takes the intentions of a man's heart as seriously as he takes his actions. Let me just read part of that. Chapter 5, verse 27. Don't worry about flicking back to it. I'll just read it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This young man uh, may not have had an adulterous relationship in the practical sense, but it's very likely that at one point or another he would have just looked on a girl lustfully, or he would have harbored murderous thoughts towards his neighbor. He had not kept God's law as God intended them to be kept. God looks on a man's heart. Not on what's on the outside, not at mere external appearances. He knows our thoughts and desires before we even think them. He doesn't just see our fickle actions. Now, as for the summary that Jesus gives at the end of that, uh, you will um, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, 
I don't see how he could have measured that. I think he was just simply wrong when he said I'd kept that law. Uh, there's no way he could have done that. Relying on the law, relying on keeping God's law, being obedient to that, will not get us into heaven. This young rich man couldn't keep it and neither can we. It only serves to condemn us of the fact that we do not keep God's standards as we should. And the young man, he does seem to recognise that there is something more, that there is something missing. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus had said, you shall uh, love your neighbour as yourself. And he realised really in his heart and hearts, he hadn't actually done that. And so he asks in verse 18, what do I still, sorry, verse 20, he asks, what do I still lack? He says, all these I've kept, but what do I still lack? What else must I do? Still ever certain that he can, he can achieve entry into heaven himself. He still hasn't picked up on any of the hints that Jesus has given him that he can't. Well now Jesus goes right for the heart of the matter, which is the state of that man's heart. What do I still lack? Well he tells the man in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Well, now Jesus is going beyond the externals. He's digging that much deeper. Jesus tells this young man, all your wealth, all that you've earned, I want you to give it over to the poor, and I want you to come and follow me. If you would enter life, that is how you have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And at these words, uh, the man's face fell. He was very sad. He no doubt left in a very depressed state. Uh, Perhaps he realised his error later. Perhaps he didn't. We're not told. He thought entering heaven was about what he could do. How good he thought he was in his own eyes. But when push came to shove, when Jesus just dug that little bit deeper, his heart was shown to be unfaithful. And that was the issue. That is what kept him from heaven. His heart was unfaithful. It was divided between a desire for God and a desire for earthly possessions. His heart was divided because of his love for money and wealth. He had broken the most important commandment, the one we heard in our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, not just a little bit, all of it. But this man was living for an idol, a created thing, his wealth. He, it's not as if he even owned his money. His money actually owned him. Had he owned his money, he could have given it away. But he was a slave to it. In God's eyes, he was an idolater, giving glory to a created thing rather than to him, the creator, who is to be ever praised. Now this man was sinful. He had fallen short of the mark. And Jesus uh, takes this opportunity to teach the disciples an important lesson when it comes to entering into heaven. Come with me to verse 23. He says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have actually tried to weaken the impact of these verses in the past. Uh, a few commentators have said, actually, in the Greek, camel can be translated into cable. You can imagine, maybe you can get a cable through the eye, probably not a good chance anyway, but maybe you can get a cable through the eye of a needle. And then others have said, actually, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and camels found it really hard to pass through it. But both those are just lame attempts to try and explain something that people really don't want to hear. It is as impossible for a rich man like the one we've just read about to enter heaven under his own resources as it was for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Or I could give you the 21st century version. It's as impossible for this rich man to get into heaven as it would be for Andrew to fit an aircraft carrier into his mouth. I'll leave you thinking about that one. Well, the disciples are astonished. They can't believe what they're hearing. I mean, it's not the first time this has happened, but this one's really thrown them. Because they thought that this rich young man had everything going for him. You see, I think today, in our society, we view someone living in very humble circumstances as being that much more pious uh, than a wealthy person. I'm not saying that's right, but I do think that's a common perception uh, today. But back in Jesus' day, it was very different. The disciples would have made a connection between this man's wealth and God's blessing. This man was so young and yet so wealthy, he had to be blessed and greatly loved by God to have so much. And not only that, he was a man of stature. He had kept God's law, at least on the outside, from the looks of it. He was doing well. As far as they were concerned, he was about as good as it got. If he can get into heaven, then who, who stands a chance? So they ask in verse 25, keeping that young man in mind, they ask, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? The disciples had got it all wrong. Uh, they needed a complete change of perspective. I think many of us might need it today as well. They viewed heaven as something that we, with our own resources, can work towards. A bit like my attitude to my OTC trials that I was talking about earlier. You work hard enough and you will make it. They had completely missed the points of what Jesus had said about those little children back in verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Even before that, you go back, come back with me to chapter 18, verse 3. Chapter 18, verse 3, he says to his disciples again, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children, you won't get in. The disciples rebuked those to whom heaven belonged and accepted the one to whom heaven was denied. So what was it? What was it about these little kids that Jesus admired so much? Why was candidate number one acceptable? What did they have that the rich young man who looked like he had everything going for him, what did he not have that these kids did? What was he missing? Humility. These kids were a picture 
of humility. They were helpless. They were totally dependent on others. They wouldn't have even been with Jesus at the time had their parents not dragged them along. They were totally dependent. He did not say this of them because they had achieved something great, that they were special in some way. They were simply dependent. Unlike the rich young man who was full of pride, who loved his achievements, who loved himself, who really thought, yeah, I can make it. I can do it on my own terms. I'll read his, read his question again. Teacher, what good must I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He thought he could make it through his own sense of morality, through his own shallow obedience to the law. But he wouldn't rely on God. He wouldn't listen to Jesus. That would have cost him far too much. It would have meant giving up his false God, his earthly possessions. For man to work to heaven is impossible. And Jesus could not have put it clearer for us than he does in the following verses in verse 26. When the disciples asked that question, they had the rich young man in mind. When they say, who can be saved if this rich young man can't? And Jesus replies, verse 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If we try to work our way towards heaven, we are attempting the impossible. No person other than Jesus himself has ever loved God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. That is God's standard for heaven if you're wondering. Do you still want to have a go at it? It's futile. All of us are guilty, as guilty as the rich young man. We all have had divided hearts, which do not seek to love and serve God faithfully all the time. For the young man, he was distracted by his wealth, by his earthly possessions. And for us here today, it might be something quite different. But we are all guilty, in one way or another, of idolatry, of giving glory and giving our passion to a created thing rather than our creator who deserves all the praise. Believing that we have the right to be the bosses of our own lives, that we can call the shots, that's idolatry. And no one can say we haven't done that. There is only one way that anyone, anyone can enter into heaven. As Jesus said, what is impossible for man is possible for God. And the wonderful news is, what was impossible, God has made possible. For sinners like you and me, those who have rejected God and live for idols, to be forgiven our sin, to know and love and serve our Creator again as we were made to do, to look forward to eternal life, not because we're special, not because we've done anything, not because we deserve it, because of Jesus because of Jesus because he lived that perfect obedient life to his heavenly father that we couldn't that we refused to that we would not and then he went to the cross for us God punished our sin your sin and my sin in the person of his son that when we trust in him we might receive his perfect right standing before God his perfect righteousness that we might be acceptable for heaven 
that we could look forward to eternal life by depending like one of those children on Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Uh, The Apostle Paul, who was actually just like uh, that rich young man uh, before he put his trust in Christ, uh, speaks of himself in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just read it for you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The right standing from God before God that depends on faith well let's conclude with a few applications firstly and most importantly it is by faith in Jesus in what he has done and that alone that we can have a hope of getting into heaven nothing else it is faith alone in Christ alone don't let anyone tell you any different It is our only means of looking forward to eternity, of being acceptable before our holy and righteous God. Don't try to be good enough for God. We're not. I'm not. You're not. We're not good enough. But God gave his only son to die for us because we are not good enough. So put your trust in him Secondly, uh, this evening we've seen the possible danger of earthly possessions for the follower of Christ, for the Christian. Uh, We've got to be careful here. Uh, The Bible does not say that wealth is evil. If you're wealthy here today and you're a Christian, you're not doing anything wrong. I wouldn't want you to think, go away and think that. Money was not the issue for this man. The state of his heart before God, that was the issue. If you are living for money then that is wrong. Please repent. Please put your trust in Jesus and live for him. But if you are seeking to love God and serve God and honour him with the money he has given you, that's great. I wouldn't be here this evening if it wasn't the kind and faithful gospel partners who had donated uh, their wealth, part of it, towards me that I might be actually here and they could support me in this ministry. And I'm very thankful to them. God is concerned with the attitudes of our hearts, not the width of our wallets. But even though wealth, in and of itself, even though it's not evil, and it can be used for good purposes, we still must be very careful. You see, in the 20th century, uh, there's a growing, well, there was a growing movement. It's still alive today. Uh, you might have come across it, known as uh, a prosperity gospel or prosperity gospel teaching. They say that if you put your trust in Jesus, you are promised abundant wealth in this life as well as assurance in eternity. So earthly riches are not just seen as a great positive for the Christian. They're seen as a God-given right. So they would say, maybe you're just walking in Carapool one day in Mid-Valley and you see that fruit that you want. They just go, well, name it and claim it. Pray over it and it will be yours. God's promised it to you. 
Well, in our verses this morning, Jesus warns his disciples of the perils of great wealth in this life, how they can be a real danger, how that far from being a promised blessing from God, they can be a terrible distraction for us, something that actually keeps us from depending on Jesus, from following him. Friends, God makes no promise to the Christian in his word that they will definitely have a prosperous life. It's a lie. It can happen. Of course we have wealthy Christians. There are plenty in the world and that's fine. But it is no certainty. And even if we do, as Christians, end up with lots of money, instead of declaring it, oh, it's a promised blessing from God, we need to be careful. Wealth can be very dangerous. We're told to keep ourselves from the love of money, to be content with what God has given us. He knows what we need. We're to seek to glorify God with what we have, not constantly wish for more. We're not to allow our possessions to harden our hearts against God. But it's not just wealth, it's not just our possessions that can keep us uh, from following Jesus faithfully. So let me ask you, is there anything else which is of this world that's holding you back from putting your trust in Jesus, from following him? For the rich man, it was his possessions. But our idols might be very different. A relationship, a love for image, our own self-respect, maybe even the respect of a family member. Well, becoming a Christian will mean ridding ourselves of idols, anything that would challenge uh, Jesus' place in our lives as our Lord and Saviour. And that could, and I think will be, costly to us in the long term, in the short term, sorry. But to forsake your eternity for something that you will lose when you die, that's foolish. Uh, as the famous missionary to the Orca Indians in South America once said, a guy called Jim Elliot, he's gone down in history for saying these words He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Don't live for idols. One day we all have to answer to the true and real and living God. And he is a jealous God. And it is terrible to fall under his judgment. What if we're here this evening and we are already following Jesus? Or maybe we are guilty still of keeping idols in our hearts. Is there anything of this world that you would not be willing to sacrifice, to give up, to remain obedient to Christ well if there is then that is your idol friends we must be sure that we are allowing Jesus to rule the whole of our lives to receive all of our glory not just a little bit all of it to have our whole heart not just a part of it like that rich young man any less is idolatry let's make sure that we're not putting anything in Jesus place this week that we remain dependent on him and serving him as Lord. Looking forward to that eternity that we have absolute certainty about through faith in Christ. Because he has died and he has risen and we are made righteous through his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that though we are not worthy 
of your heaven. You have done what is impossible for us to do. You have given your son to uh, die in our place, to take that punishment we deserved, and through faith in that, uh, we have his righteousness and that promised inheritance of eternal life. Uh, thank you for that wonderful promise. Uh, pray, Lord, that we would be living in the light of Jesus' return, in the light of that eternity. We'd be serving him faithfully. Help us not to be foolish like that rich young man, putting his energies and his worship into a created thing rather than honouring you. Humble our hearts, we pray, Lord. Help us to identify uh, the idols in our lives that uh, rob you of our affections, uh, that we would be giving you all the glory and all the honour that you deserve as we trust in Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. And in his name we pray. Amen.